Hey, this is Brent from Vancouver, BC, Canada. You are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and two crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platforms that you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support our show on Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month. And there are currently more than 40 episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1 a month. In addition, there are eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. This week, I'd like to thank Ashley S., Andrea G., Natalie B., Sheridan, Sarah G., Vanessa S., Nia C., Marion R., Shelly M., Melissa S., Joe Natasha, and Andrea H. for joining Patreon. And also, I'd like to thank Lisa Beans, Kelly B., Ruth K., April G., and Barbara J. for bumping their pledges up to the next tier. I will do more Patreon thank yous in the next episode, number 146, part two of this. And if you've recently joined or raised your pledge and you haven't heard your thank you, it's a come in, I promise. And if you are unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping California Dreaming going, so thank you so much for all of your support. Also, at the end of this episode, listen for two promos from two new podcasts that I've just discovered. Let's talk about jealousy. According to Merriam-Webster, this is the experiencing of feelings of hostility towards a rival or towards someone believed to be enjoying an advantage. Jealousy is often listed as a common motive for murder. We are getting close to celebrating our third year since we launched this podcast back in June of 2017. And the motives for these crimes have been all over the place. Love, money, anger, passion, honor, greed, revenge, hatred, psychopathy, recreation, boredom, 
betrayal, retribution, convenience, embarrassment, and of course, jealousy. What cases have we discussed in the more than 140 stories that we've told on our show now? Well, from very early on, we'd say that the man who went on a killing spree, ending up with the murder of fashion icon Gianni Versace, remember him? Andrew Kananen? Was he motivated by jealousy? I got the impression that was part of it. There was a case of twin sisters, Gina and Sunny Han, where the one sister plotted the murder of the other out of a desire to try and assume her identity. There seemed to be elements of jealousy throughout that story, too. There was a three-part series on spree killer Elliot Roger. In his lengthy manifesto, he repeatedly expressed his jealousy towards the types of guys who were able to have the types of girls who would never give him any attention. There is a great deal of jealousy when it comes to these men that we refer to as incels that sometimes manifests itself into anger and acts of violence like it did with Roger. There was the murder of Jasmine Fiore committed by her husband of only five months, Ryan Jenkins. There was a tremendous amount of jealousy on his part towards Jasmine, which ultimately led her to be murdered by him. And then there's good old Betty Broderick. I mean, many of us feel as though she was gaslighted by her husband and his new wife, but that is certainly a case where the jealousy motivated the killings. There was episode 104, the murder of Maribel Ramos, who was murdered by her roommate, Casey Joy, who had harbored romantic feelings towards her, but the feeling was not mutual. Then there was our four-part series on the murder of Stacy Stites. Rodney Reed was convicted and sentenced to death for the killing, but it is strongly believed that it was actually Stacy's fiancé at the time, Jimmy Finnell, who killed her, likely in a fit of rage and or jealousy. In episode 119, we talked about the murder of YouTube fashion influencer Tamisha Ridge, who was killed by a jealous ex-boyfriend named Demichelo Green. The list goes on and on. But of these cases, most, not all, but most involve the murder being committed by someone who had been spurned by someone they had romantic feelings for. There is often an element of jealousy being related to a romantic rival. And sometimes that rivalry doesn't even really exist, but rather, there only needs to be the perception of its existence. Which, it seems to have been the case today in our story here. In this 145th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the brink of insanity. I'd like to thank Jen M. for recommending this story. Sometimes, us, we that are into true crime, we see memes or we make jokes about if something happens to any of us, we ask those who knew us in life to please don't fill people's heads with lies about who we were when we were alive. Like, we weren't the sweetest person in the world. Everybody didn't love me. I did not light up a room when I walked in. To be honest, in life, I was just kind of meh. And there is totally nothing wrong or disingenuous about that at all. Even if we did brighten a room when we walked in, it couldn't have been every single freaking day of our lives, right? 
that would be annoying. We all have those days when we're feeling just kind of blech. And that's just as much of a part of who we were as a person as anything else. We're human. We are who we are. Maybe there are days that the room gets lit when we enter, and then there's days that the room is just like, eh, go away. But we do like to say nice things about people when they're no longer here anymore. I'm all for that. We don't like to speak ill of the dead. Well, most of us anyway. Or when something happens to a person, like, say, if someone goes missing. A million thoughts will go through the minds of the family and loved ones of that missing person. I've pointed out in a number of episodes about missing persons where I felt like the family of the missing person needed to be more forthcoming about what was going on in their lives at the time that they vanished. At least we have an idea of where to start. Sometimes young people, teenagers, even young adults are having a really hard time in life. And for one reason or another, one day they just are inexplicably gone. And the family will come forward and be like, yeah, he or she was struggling with this, that, and the other. And then, okay, we might not be out there looking for some crazed maniac that is just snatching people up and making them vanish. That's not to say that that person's disappearance shouldn't be taken any less seriously than anyone else's. But I often point out the case of Maura Murray having gone missing in the mountains of Haverhill, New Hampshire. Her dad, Fred Murray, believed that there was a strong possibility that Maura fell victim to a random quote-unquote bad guy or a serial killer who she crossed paths with following that crash of her car on that highway. From even very early on, Fred Murray has been quoted in the media as saying she was in good spirits and had no worries or reason to run away from her life. And that is a direct quote from Fred to CNN some 12 years ago. And we know that that isn't exactly true. And it doesn't help. But we took him at face value. And with that, it may have been likely that the people who lived in and around Haverhill may have been worried that there was like this boogeyman living amongst them. Even that bus driver who happened upon Mora when she wrecked her car, Butch Atwood, he lived under a veil of suspicion for years until he died. I believe there are still people online who think that Butch Atwood had something to do with Maura's disappearance. But anyway, my point is, if dad is going to come to the media forlorn and heartbroken over his daughter's inexplicable disappearance, and he insists that she must have been abducted by a bad guy because she had absolutely no reason to run away from her life, and if we didn't know any better, then we're going to want to believe him. Maura Murray is not the ordinary case because it has had so many people theorizing as to what happened to her. And when that did eventually happen, it quickly shot down the narrative that Fred Murray was pushing that Maura was abducted. Because over the years, information has come out that Maura was a very troubled young woman in a number of ways. And it may not have exactly caused her to want to run away from her life forever. But to me, it was clear that she was running away from something, at least for that week. She sent at least one email that said she was going to be gone for a week. She cleaned out her bank account. She had a MapQuest printout to directions towards Vermont. 
She had purchased alcohol, which spilled in her car as a result of the crash, meaning that she was actively drinking as she was going along there. And on top of all this, Mora went ahead and took the chance on making this trip in her busted and broken down old Saturn, knowing it wasn't in any kind of shape to make that kind of road trip into remote locations with no cell phone service. I mean, clearly there was something going on with this girl. And to this day, she is still missing. Is it because of the way that Fred handled it? No, I don't think so. But I don't think it helped. Is this all the fault of local law enforcement? I'm not really in a position to say for sure. I do know that Fred Murray blames them 100% for Mora continuing to be missing to this day. But I mean, how much can we really blame them for investigating a crash that appears to have been caused by a drunk driver who fled the scene in order to not rack up yet another charge? Because remember, Mora had been in trouble just three months earlier for using a stolen credit card to order $80 in pizza deliveries. She had been ordered to stay out of trouble for exactly that amount of time, three months. And if she was able to do so, then the charges against her for the pizza heist would have been dropped. A drunken car crash would have triggered her having faced not only the drunk driving charge, but also the credit card fraud charge. Nobody knew this at the time, of course, but Mora knew it. And it is not unheard of for someone to walk away from a solo car accident in order to sober up before facing the music. Mora would have been in a heap of trouble. And it would have been more than just a drunk driving charge. And I don't know if her dad knew about what was going on with the credit card pizza fraud. I assume he didn't know. But he would find out if she was going to get picked up for drunk driving. I can only assume that the police at the time figured that Mora was drunk, she left the scene to hide, and would eventually resurface, and they treated the case as such. They had no idea that we would be sitting here 16 years later, still wondering what the heck happened to Mora Murray. Coincidentally, today we're going to be talking about another nursing student, clear across the country from UMass where Mora attended at Samuel Merritt University in Oakland, California. Her name, Michelle Lee, spelled differently than last week's Lizette Lee. It's Lee with only one E. At the time, she was 26 years old, having been born October 24, 1984, in San Diego, California. When Michelle made her way across the footbridge leading from where she was completing her training at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, located in San Francisco's East Bay subregion city of Hayward, to the parking lot where hospital staff parked their vehicles. She was actually not supposed to be out there on the footbridge heading to the parking area where her white Honda CRV was parked, and it was just out of range of surveillance cameras overlooking the exterior of the hospital and the interior of the garage. She was scheduled to be inside at the hospital. She had been assigned a post, and she did not have permission to leave her post for any reason. And then exactly 22 minutes later, Michelle's SUV is seen leaving the hospital parking garage. She still had at least an hour and a half or so left on her shift that evening. It was a Friday, so 
Could she have wanted to cut out a little bit early for some plans that she had? Well, according to her family, not a chance. And when her family expresses the sentiment, our first inclination, as always, is to believe them, just like we believed Fred Murray, right? Sensible, conscientious nursing students dedicated to their studies, compassionate young women wanting to get into the field of helping, inexplicably walking away from their responsibilities? Well, that may not have exactly been the case with Mora, But for Michelle, nothing about her leaving made any sense. She was dedicated. She was responsible and dependable. And it was way out of character for her to suddenly up and leave the hospital with seemingly no reasons or explanations. But yet, there she was, clear as day on surveillance video doing exactly that. She walked away and seemingly vanished into thin air. It would take a while before Michelle's family would even begin to have any answers. But sadly, they tortured themselves with questions as to why could she have not turned left instead of turned right? Why could she have not gone here instead of gone there? Why did she zig when she should have zagged? I mean, a person could literally drive themselves mad, contemplating the infinite numbers of twists of fate that could have, should have, or would have changed the trajectory of any given moment in a series of moments that led up to that one that took Michelle across that footbridge, into that parking garage, out of sight of the cameras, and to never be seen alive again. I don't think we ever need to look at things through the lens of what ifs, because in a way, it kind of makes it out to be that the victim or the missing person was doing something wrong or something that they shouldn't have been doing. I mean, sometimes they are. Like Mora, she shouldn't have been drinking and driving. But you know, other than that, she had every right to be driving on that road, headed to wherever she was headed to, to do whatever she needed to do for herself. But Michelle's family, in the wake of her disappearance, kept questioning fate. Why that day? Why her? Why their family? Michelle Lee and her family, they're from Vietnam. And I've mentioned in the past that my mom's side of the family is Vietnamese. And I so very much understand this demanding to want to know why or what they did to deserve this to be their destiny. There always has to be some karmic reasoning behind it all. I've made no secret of the fact that I haven't had the best relationship with my mom in the past. However, whatever issues that my mom has with me, wherever she thinks it all stems from, I promise you this, she has long removed herself from possibly being any part of the problem by attributing our troubled relationship to the fact that I was born in the year of the tiger which to her means that my life was doomed to be beset with misfortune and disappointment. Of course, I don't agree, but the way people measure fortune and misfortune are different. For example, I might have a full and happy life with my family and my pets and my podcast, but for my mom, she's likely to measure the fullness and happiness of someone's life based on their personal net worth. But anyway, my point is, to Vietnamese people, there has to be some cosmic reason for the things to happen the way that they happen. 
And I can't speak for the entire Vietnamese culture, but knowing what I know from my own personal experience, there seems to have to be reasons why bad things happen to good people. And you know, for most of us, there really doesn't have to be a reason that has anything to do with them or their family. There are just things out there in the world that are beyond your control. There isn't anything the Lee family could have done differently to set Michelle on a different course in order to avert what was going to happen to her. So when the images of Michelle taking her last walk along that footbridge, her family continued to beat themselves up over it. Why Michelle? The answers would begin to trickle in, and they'd come to find that it really didn't have anything to do with them. However, the truth was going to take some time to reveal itself. In the meantime, going back to that night, Michelle's instructor at Kaiser Permanente, just a little bit before 9 p.m., had spent the last couple hours trying to figure out what happened to Michelle. She was frustrated that she wasn't where she was supposed to be. It was important for Michelle to have not left her station. Her instructor was confused because, like, where in the world did she go and what happened to her? And as the evening wore on, Michelle's instructor finally became concerned. So a little bit after 9 p.m., the nurse, along with the hospital security guard, made their way together to the parking garage to see if they could find Michelle's car. The time that they were making this trip to the garage was time-stamped at 9.05 p.m. At exactly 9.06, one minute later, Michelle's white Honda CRV is captured being driven back into the parking garage two floors below them. The vehicle is then driven up to the third floor of the garage where it had originally been parked. What is not seen on camera is Michelle's nursing instructor noticing the vehicle coming back to the third floor of the garage, at which time she began waving at the car, attempting to get the driver who she assumed is Michelle. She wanted to try to get her attention. But as soon as she began to motion to the car, it immediately stopped. The driver threw it into reverse, turned around, and quickly drove back down the garage ramps and exited and sped away. I'm not sure what that nurse was thinking, but she was certain that something wasn't right. So she called the police and reported the incident. And she let police know that she was pretty sure that something happened to her nursing student. Police took the report and immediately began their investigation. The following morning, the word that Michelle had gone missing the night before began to reach her family. One of the first ones to hear about it was Michelle's cousin, who lived all the way down about 400 miles or 640 kilometers south of the Bay Area in San Diego. Her cousin's name was Christine. She was woken up the morning of Saturday, May 28, 2011, by a text message from a former boyfriend of Michelle's. His text said, quote, Hey, just so you know, we don't know where Michelle is. Have you heard from her? Try calling her. Now, Christine's first reaction was like, Okay, what in the world is Michelle up to? She knows her cousin has a pretty active social life. She loves going out with her friends. Her cousin has even said that she sometimes just gets lost in the night. Now, my first reaction is to think, oh, well, maybe her family's initial reaction to this 
being so out of character for Michelle that she's too responsible, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they don't know how much she likes to party and how much of a nightlife that she enjoys. Maybe one of those late nights got the best of her. Maybe it was not unusual for Michelle to just crash out on someone's sofa to sleep it off. And she's just out of touch and she's away from her car. It happens, right? Then I thought, eh, there are plenty of people who are perfectly capable of balancing their professional life and their social life. It was a Friday night. She was working a little bit late at the hospital. There's nothing wrong with a night out to cut loose and to sleep in. That's the first thing her cousin is thinking. And the message really didn't cause her to fly into a panic. As a matter of fact, after she looked at that text message, she put the phone back down and went right back to sleep. Christine was not concerned because Michelle was 26 years old at the time. She was the eldest of the 15 cousins, their parents all being siblings. They kept close, so the cousins were pretty much raised together, which is common in Asian families. But this is particularly true for Christine and Michelle, and I'll explain more about that later on. But sometimes these families, they can share a home. The cousins are sometimes brought up as close as siblings. And as the eldest of the bunch, Michelle took on that role of the leader of the group. She had all of the qualities to embrace her position and be effective in it. She was confident and strong and smart, and she cared very deeply for her family. Those who knew Michelle described her as being as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. And the next person to hear from Michelle's former boyfriend was her younger brother, Michael. He received a call trying to get a hold of Michelle. But like their cousin before him, Michael really paid no mind to it. As a matter of fact, he just figured that the call was from Michelle's ex and he just wanted to try and talk to her. And maybe she was avoiding him or not really wanting to talk to him. And even though Michael was not at all alarmed at receiving the call, he did go online to take a look at Michelle's social media accounts to see what she'd been up to the past couple days. And he knew that she had plans to take a road trip with some friends to Lake Tahoe. This was Memorial Day weekend. So he got on Messenger and sent a couple of messages to them before he left for the day because he had to go to work just to check and make sure everything was okay and going as planned. Now, I don't know if he messaged Michelle or if he just didn't mention it, but I have to assume he attempted to text and message her too. And from there, Michael went on about his day. But later on that same morning, Michael received a second phone call from someone concerned about Michelle, her nursing instructor at Kaiser Permanente. Michael could tell on the phone from the tone of her voice that she was upset, and she was having a hard time gaining her composure to explain what happened the evening before. She told him how Michelle had abandoned her post at work without permission and without informing anyone or saying anything about where she was going which was a thing that she clearly should not have done, and she would have known that. Then after more than an hour of not being able to figure out where Michelle had gone, she went to the garage to look for her car, and that's when she saw a car that matched what she knew Michelle to be driving suddenly speed off when she tried to wave it down. Now, getting a phone call from Michelle's ex-boyfriend was one thing, but this, this was a different story. 
and it immediately worried Michael. There is no reason Michelle would have been behaving like that. Leaving her job and speeding off in her car, it didn't make any sense. Before long, her, their cousin Christine's concern also began to grow, and she started trying to call and text Michelle's phone, but received no answers or response. And it wasn't like Michelle to not answer calls from her family. They knew that something was wrong. At around 9.30, the morning after Michelle walked away from her post at Kaiser, her car was discovered by the local law enforcement parked in front of an apartment complex a few blocks away from the hospital. Looking the car over, Hayward police didn't right away see anything alarming. The car was locked. There wasn't anything in it or around it they could see that looked out of place. And as they glanced through the tinted windows of the Honda, it was just really difficult to see inside. The interior, the upholstery, it was dark. So the initial thought was, is that Michelle must have parked the car there on her own and was someplace nearby, possibly in one of the apartments that was on the block. But they had no idea which one it could be, nor did they have any idea where to begin looking. In the meantime, Michelle's family, after they had spent the morning bombarding each other with phone calls and text messages between all of the aunts, uncles, cousins, and everybody else in between, they figured the next step was to just pack up and start the eight-hour commute to the San Francisco area. Michelle's brother Michael was already somewhat nearby as he was going to school at Berkeley, so by the time he met up with Michelle's friends in Hayward, they had already printed up some missing persons posters and were distributing them, fanning out from the hospital where Michelle was last seen. And everybody had been blowing up Michelle's phone the entire morning with hundreds of calls and texts. When finally, at 12.45 on that Saturday afternoon, Michelle's friends and family began receiving text messages from her phone. They were reassuring messages that she was okay, that she wasn't missing that her phone completely glitched out on her because of the explosion of calls and text messages, her battery died, and everything on her phone got deleted or wiped out. She told everyone she was okay, she's fine, she's just taking a break, she's just kicking back. But when the ex-boyfriend texted Michelle back, he was surprised at the response that he received because she should have known his number. It should have been in her phone, saved. If not, then she certainly knew that it was his. But the response was, who's this? So it raised even more questions. Was it really Michelle that was sending that text messages, really not recognizing his number? Maybe she was tired or out of it or not really thinking clearly, especially if she had just woken up and was trying to get her wits about her. Could she be stressed? Sure. Being a nursing student is a lot of work, and it's stressful. Maybe Michelle's just in need of some time away to decompress. We all need that once in a while, right? Time to ourselves? Well, except maybe for right now. I don't know about you guys, but I've had enough time to myself at home to last me for the rest of 2020. But anyway, 
As the day wore on, the text messages from Michelle's phone kept coming, and they really weren't bringing anyone any comfort as to what was going on with her. If anything, the cryptic nature of the messages made her friends and family even more concerned, as she was saying things like, I just needed some time to myself, or I had a really bad night last night, or I don't want to talk to anybody right now. And then, just before 4 p.m., the text messages from Michelle's phone stopped coming in. Her final message was an ominous one that simply read, I'm sick. Her family wasn't fooled, though. You know, you just know somebody. And when you know them really, really well, you know what they say and you know how they say it. You know the way they word things. You know their mannerisms and their speak. And you're just going to know when the messages just sound weird. It's not the way they say things. Especially when it's your family, your cousins that you're close to, your siblings. They just know. And they knew that these messages weren't being sent by Michelle. And so the thought of that brought a whole new wave of fear and terror. If Michelle isn't the one sending these messages, then who is? Who has her phone? Why are they doing this? What are they hiding? And most importantly, where is Michelle and why is she not the one with her phone? But despite that sense of dread and terror, it also came with a sense of hope and optimism. We know what the worst case scenario is, and that's Michelle no longer being alive. But her family, their minds refused to go there. They felt like they must be in communication with the person who has kidnapped Michelle and is hiding someplace with her, holding her against her will, and it was up to them to find her and save her. And so, of course, time is of the essence. And in their minds, they begin to go to those dark places that Michelle is being harmed and they have to hurry and find her. So more than a dozen of Michelle's family and friends and classmates showed up at the Hayward police station to meet with the lead investigator on the case, a gentleman by the name of Fraser Ritchie, Inspector Ritchie. Her family and friends made it clear something is terribly wrong. She is so responsible. She would never behave like this. They were sure that she was abducted and she was being held someplace. Inspector Ritchie asked if they had actually heard from Michelle and if they had actually spoken to her or anything. And they said they did receive text messages, but they had not spoken to her. So the inspector himself sent a text message to Michelle's phone. He identified himself as being with the Hayward police and that he needed her to get in touch with him immediately. Within a few minutes, Inspector Ritchie received a message from Michelle's phone. And it said that her battery was dying, that she couldn't find her charger, and she was experiencing some troubles with her car. For her family, those messages only confirmed for them that something was wrong and that she was being held against her will. If she had been asked by a police officer to call, she would have called. But the inspector at this point, he didn't know what to think. But he was willing to keep an open mind and explore any possibility. So the idea that Michelle could have left on her own 
as she had been saying, to get away or to take a break or whatever. To the inspector, that was just as possible as her having been abducted and hidden someplace. And even if this was a kidnapping, was it random or was it committed by someone she was acquainted with or did she just leave on her own or leave with friends? So we had to ask, is it possible that Michelle became overwhelmed with the stressors of life, with work, with school, with the nursing training? Maybe it was all becoming too much. The family and friends willingly admitted that, yes, they could not rule out the possibility that Michelle just needed a break from it all. Okay, well, next question. Did Michelle have any problems with anybody that they knew of? Did she have a bad breakup? Did she have a tumultuous relationship with an intimate partner? Was Michelle going through anything in her personal life that was causing her problems? And the one question that gets asked when someone is thought to have fallen victim to a crime, did Michelle have any enemies? Is there anyone who seemed to have had a grudge or recently Michelle had been having a dispute or a disagreement with? The answer from everybody who knew Michelle was a resounding yes. There was one person causing her problems. And that one person was a young woman named Giselle Esteban. Okay, so who is Giselle Esteban? Well, Michelle and Giselle, and Giselle is Filipino, became acquainted back in San Diego, having attended Mount Carmel High School together. The girls had become best friends. But not only was Giselle close with Michelle, but she was also close with Michelle's family. She was over at their house nearly every day and interacted with Michelle and her cousins and her brother, becoming very close with the entire family, having been a constant presence in their home. Once the girls graduated from Mount Carmel in 2002, they both decided to move on to the next phase in their lives together. The intention was to go to college, though they went to different universities, I don't know if Giselle intended to study nursing, but that was definitely the direction Michelle was going to go. And the intention was to keep close to each other as they wanted to be there for one another, to support each other as they made their way through college. But the arrangement did not last as long as anticipated. Things happen and life happens and people begin to evolve and change and they get into other relationships. And that's exactly what happened with Giselle. She met a guy. She fell hard for him. She wound up getting pregnant, which really wasn't exactly part of the college plan that they had laid out when they decided to do this. But like so many before, the relationship did not last. And within three years, Giselle and her boyfriend had called it quits. At least for them, it was over. They still had a child to raise together. So they were going to very much be in each other's lives either way. However, trouble began brewing from very early on in the relationship between Giselle and her boyfriend. You see, in the past, once upon a time, Michelle had briefly dated that boyfriend. In the spring of 2003, Giselle was attending school at San Francisco State University while Michelle was at San Jose State University. 
They were coming up upon finishing their freshman year when Michelle was introduced to Scott Marisigan, and it was Giselle who introduced them. He was a fellow student of hers at San Francisco State, and he had become friends with Giselle. From there, something would happen that would set in motion the events that would come, bringing us to our story today. It all began back then in 2003. So this was some eight and a half years in the making. There had been somewhat of a romantic spark between Scott and Michelle. Based on the events that would eventually unfold, I think it's safe to assume that it was likely Giselle had eyes for Scott. And so when she introduced her best friend to her new guy friend, the unintended outcome of the two of them embarking upon a dating relationship probably did not sit well with Giselle. It did not sit well with her at all. And Giselle was not simply going to sit idly by and allow for these two to carry on while she had been the one who met Scott She had been the one who was interested in him. And Michelle, her best friend since high school, had suddenly interfered in that. And to me, this is sort of a sensitive area to navigate because when it comes to best friends, this is a place that we try not to go. We try not to let a guy come between our friendships. However, there also has to be a certain amount of understanding and communication between the friends. I don't know how much or how little Giselle had expressed her feelings for Scott this early in all of this. She may not have opened up to Scott about it yet. He may not have known that Giselle was interested in being more than friends with him. But the real question is, did she share her feelings for Scott with Michelle in the beginning? My first inclination is to believe that she did tell Michelle because that's what we do. We tell our friends when we're crushing on a guy, right? And that is where any possibility of your friends making a play for your crush comes to a full stop. At least it should if you truly respect the friendship that you have with your best friend. You just don't go there. If your BFF is into a guy, then he's off limits. But then the unknown factor in this triangle is Scott and who he may or may not be interested in. Now, he first becomes friends with Giselle, right? But then he met Michelle, and he might have instantly been taken with her, more so than he ever had been with Giselle up to that point. And there's really nothing anyone can do about that. He's going to like who he likes. As long as he's not playing both girls, then fine. There isn't anything either Giselle or Michelle could have done. He's going to feel how he feels. Now, if Scott did express his feelings for Michelle, how he went about that, If he was open and honest with both of them, that's fine too. So at this point, it's going to be up to Michelle and Giselle as to how they're going to move forward. And the honorable thing would be to agree that Scott would just be off limits, especially if both girls liked him. But that doesn't always work out. Clearly, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about this here today. Whatever was said between the three of them, however they worked it out, if Giselle was attempting to be the bigger person and was willing to step aside, after all, Scott was interested in her best friend, not her. She simply had to try to stifle her feelings. 
Or perhaps Scott was unaware Giselle had feelings for him when he expressed his interest in Michelle. And maybe Michelle didn't either, but I tend to doubt that. I think Giselle would have told her. Whatever the situation was, Michelle and Scott began dating sometime in 2003. And we can only guess how this left Giselle feeling. And it probably was not great. But as I said, Giselle would not sit idly by. The dating relationship between Michelle and Scott lasted all of one month. That's it. And that's because Giselle threw a big, huge monkey wrench into it all. She reached out to Scott. There was something that she felt that he needed to know. That Michelle had been having what Giselle termed as a semi-affair. This caused Scott and Michelle to break up. But it was a very amicable breakup. There wasn't any animosity. And Scott would later say that he considered Michelle to be a friend he would have had for the rest of his life. Whether or not the information Giselle told Scott about Michelle having a semi-affair was true, I can't really say. But it doesn't seem like either Michelle or Scott really lost any sleep over the end of their dating relationship. It had only gone on for a month. And maybe it wasn't a full-on committed thing and perhaps Michelle was considering it a casual dating relationship and was talking to or seeing another person at the time. And maybe they figured it would be best for all involved, especially if they were beginning to realize that Giselle was not happy that they were dating, that there's so many other possible scenarios here we just don't know, but maybe they just figured to just it would be best to leave it alone. All we do know for sure is, is by the mid to late spring of 2003, Scott and Michelle were no longer dating. They decided to remain friends. And Giselle is somewhere in the periphery of it all. Then the story takes a turn in the fall of 2003, just a few months after Michelle and Scott's breakup. Giselle and Scott begin seeing one another. Now, how we feel about this, us listening, is probably going to vary. But it also depends on what Giselle and Michelle talked about and agreed on. Now, I'm never going to think that it's a good idea for best friends to date the same guy, even if time has passed. And in this case, it's only been a few months of that summer. I mean, you got to really be mature enough and trusting enough to keep both your best friend and your boyfriend in your life if they've dated. They're inevitably going to cross paths, right? And there may always be that awkwardness of your boyfriend having once been involved with your best friend. I wish I had more information about Michelle and Giselle and how they felt about the whole thing, but I just don't have those details. All we can do is watch and see how this story ultimately unfolds. However, Scott did later indicate that when he and Giselle began dating, it appeared to him that her and Michelle got along pretty well. They both, together as a couple, spent a great deal of time with Michelle. It was sometime after Giselle and Scott began dating that Michelle encountered a deeply personal issue that she needed to deal with. She had become pregnant, and her intention was to terminate the pregnancy. While she was going through this, 
Michelle apparently did not confide in her best friend, Giselle, that this was a thing going on with her. Instead, she confided in Scott. Now, I've had very close friends invite me over or invite me out to tell me that they're pregnant. And it is such a huge deal when something like that happens. I mean, I haven't been told by any of my friends that they were intending to terminate the pregnancy. But those are some of the most emotional moments I've ever had in my life when I find out that someone that I am close to who I love and care about so much is going to have a baby. But yeah, if my best friend got pregnant, I'd expect to be in the know pretty damn early on. And then I thought about it. What if my best friend told my husband, but not me? Which I don't know how or why that would happen, but if it did, I'd be confused and I'd be mad about it. I tried to put myself in Giselle's place. Why would Michelle tell Scott and not Giselle? To me, the answer seems rooted in trust or a lack of trust. For whatever reason, Michelle did not feel comfortable enough to tell Giselle something this important, yet she told Scott. She seemed to trust what his reaction would be. Maybe she knew that he would not judge her, that he would not use that information against her in any way to hurt her or to make her feel bad or guilty. I mean, remember... Giselle is the one who interfered in Michelle and Scott's relationship by telling him that Michelle had cheated on him. And that was kind of an indicator that if the cheating thing were true, then Giselle could not be trusted to keep things in confidence. But that again depends on how each of us listening feels about it. Did Giselle do the right thing by telling Scott Michelle had a semi-affair? For me, if it was me, I would not have gone to him about it. I don't even know what, if anything, I'd say to my friend either. Because they'd only been dating for a month. It wasn't like they'd been married for 20 years with a bunch of kids and a house and an entire life built together. And the discovery of an affair would have imploded the entire family and all of their lives. It was only a month. But that cuts both ways. Yeah, it hadn't been a long time, which is all the more reason that I would say just stay out of it. What did it matter if Giselle spilled the beans to Scott or not? There are only two reasons I could see Giselle being motivated to interfere like that. Either she truly valued her friendship with Scott and she did not like seeing him potentially getting hurt Or she was attempting to cause problems between them, hoping that they'd break up, which is what ultimately happened. The first one is kind of flimsy. Giselle's loyalty to her friendship with Scott. Eh, she'd been friends much, much longer with Michelle, and her friendship with her should have trumped everything. So it leads me to believe that Giselle's intent was to break them up, which for me felt like it was a bad move on Giselle's part. I think she should have kept things between herself and Michelle. And because of that, I think Michelle lost a certain amount of trust in Giselle and was very measured with what she was willing to say or confide in her from that point forward. 
And hence, we have the reason why when Michelle became pregnant and was opting to terminate, she opened up to Scott instead of Giselle. A few weeks after Michelle had shared this information with Scott and the pregnancy had been terminated, somehow Giselle found out about what Michelle had gone through. How she found out about the pregnancy and the termination, I'm not clear about that, but that wasn't what upset her. What made Giselle furious was the fact that Scott had already known about it long before she did, before the pregnancy had even been terminated, and she was so angry that they both kept that from her. Giselle felt betrayed, which I can understand feeling that way. I would not like my husband and my best friend keeping big secrets from me or my friend confiding in my husband about something so deeply personal without telling me. To me, it just wouldn't make any sense. And if their friendship had not already been rocky, it would most likely be from that point forward. I mean, if your husband or boyfriend or significant other is keeping secrets with your BFF, that's a problem because it's like, what else are they hiding? Anyway, at this point, I'm already convinced that this three-way friendship slash relationship between Michelle, Giselle, and Scott is not going well at all. Giselle and Scott would attempt to make their relationship work for about the next year and a half or so following this perceived betrayal of secrets being kept from her between Scott and Michelle. However, sometime in the spring of 2005, the couple couldn't do it anymore and they went through a breakup. But by that summer, they decided to give their relationship another try because they found out that Giselle was in fact pregnant by Scott. Their daughter was born that October of 2005. And from there, for the next three years into 2008, Giselle, Scott, and their child lived together. They attempted to make things work in order to raise their baby as a couple. But after about a year after their daughter was born, Giselle began taking more serious of an issue with Scott's friendship with Michelle. She'd never really gotten over the fact that they had kept that huge secret from her. And with that constantly weighing on her, the anger and resentment that Giselle was feeling towards the whole thing began to develop into this paranoia that Scott and Michelle were keeping more secrets, up to and including that Michelle and Scott were having a sexual relationship behind her back. Scott insisted he was adamant that he and Michelle never had a sexual relationship, even while they were dating. And while he was working through this with Giselle, he did everything that he could to put her mind at ease about it, even going so far as to agreeing to cut off all contact with Michelle. But nothing Scott tried satisfied Giselle, and over time, her paranoia, her resentment, and her hostility continued to fester. Giselle and Scott's relationship finally crumbled in the summer of 2008, at which point the court proceedings to sort out the custody arrangements for their daughter began. But by November of 2008, Giselle was granted a move-away order, at which point she packed up herself and their daughter and moved back down to San Diego. Scott was granted a fully shared custody agreement and a very generous visitation schedule, which he took full advantage of. However, by the following June of 2009, Giselle informed Scott that she had met someone new, she was in a committed relationship with this person, 
and she was moving herself and their daughter in with this man. This was an arrangement that Scott strongly objected to. So in November of 2009, he filed the papers requesting to be granted full custody of their daughter, a proceeding which would take several months to sort through. But it seemed as though before the custody issue was finally addressed in court, Giselle and her new boyfriend broke up. But at that point, she was pregnant by her now ex-boyfriend. Then she went and confided in Scott that she too had intentions of terminating that pregnancy. Now, whether or not Giselle was actually pregnant, I don't know. And whether or not she actually went through with a termination of a pregnancy, I don't know that either. Whatever the case was, after this pregnancy or after it had been terminated, or if it existed at all, she and Scott did resume a sexual relationship. And this led to a handful of intimate encounters between the two. Scott would later acknowledge that even though their relationship had officially ended, there were still times when they would get together and engage in intimate sexual activity. However, just because Giselle was no longer involved with the boyfriend that she had been living with in San Diego that had prompted Scott to file for full custody, he did not withdraw his filing and the issue was brought before a judge. And in August of 2010, Scott was awarded full custody of his daughter at which point he promptly moved her back to Northern California to live with him. But it would only be about two months before Giselle decided to move back to Northern California too. Shortly before her return to the area, Giselle and Scott enrolled in a class on high-conflict parenting. Giselle took this opportunity to ask the instructor of the class if a meeting between herself, Scott, and Michelle could be facilitated. Now, bear in mind, this is now going on nearly seven and a half years of this drama inside Giselle's head. But like in other cases that we've covered, and I've said it before earlier in this episode, it doesn't matter what's really going on between Michelle and Scott. Giselle only has to think that there is something going on. So the three of them had this meeting with this counselor. They all agreed to attend. And it was during this meeting that Michelle revealed that she had been accepted into the nursing program at Samuel Merritt University. Giselle, who seemed happy for this big news, shared that she really wanted to patch things up with Michelle and reconnect as friends. It's been reported that at this meeting, Michelle was very open to the idea of wanting to get back to a better, healthier place with her old friend. But when the meeting was over and it was time to put into action what they had shared that they wanted to do and what their goals were for their friendship for the future, it didn't seem to be there anymore for Giselle. As a matter of fact, Giselle seemed in a worse place than she'd ever been in the past in terms of Michelle's place in her life and Michelle's place in Scott's life. It all began to manifest itself into this fixation on Giselle's part that Michelle was the reason that her family broke apart. That it was because of Michelle's presence, her interference, and what she believed to have been an affair between her and Scott that caused them to split. She had become so obsessed over the whole thing that it was a constant point of contention between her and Scott as they continued to try to co-parent this child. 
It consumed their entire relationship. It plagued Giselle's every waking moment to a point where she incessantly badgered Scott to death over it with constant expressions of anger, paranoia, and most disturbingly, hate-filled tirades aimed directly at Michelle. I'll go into more details regarding Giselle's growing obsession over Michelle as we go along. So once Inspector Ritchie got that information from Michelle's friends and family that she had been having an ongoing and long-term problem with Giselle, and after he got the brush off from when he had attempted to text Michelle's phone and was told that the battery was dead, the charger was missing, and that she was having car problems, he decided to pay Giselle a visit in person. He still wasn't exactly sure what he was looking at here, but he figured that he had to at least make sure that he did his due diligence as the lead investigator on the case. So late into the evening on Saturday, a little more than 24 hours after Michelle was last seen, Inspector Ritchie stopped by where Giselle was living at the time to find out what, if anything, she may know. When Giselle opened the door, Inspector Ritchie introduced himself and said he was there regarding Michelle Lee. And you know what the first thing Giselle said in response to that? Who? Yeah, she asked who. And you know and I know and we all know that she heard him the first time. He didn't stutter. He was there to talk about Michelle. Giselle was either playing dumb or stalling or both. But you know, this inspector has probably seen and heard it all. So he repeated, Michelle, I'm here to talk to you about Michelle. And Giselle, in her best faking feign of concern, said, oh, yeah, God, Michelle, what about her? And he said, well, she went missing last night. Okay. And when we spoke to Michelle's family, your name came up as someone that she had a difficult and troubled relationship with. Tumultuous. And again, stalling Giselle asked, a tumultuous relationship? Like she's confused. And then Giselle followed that up with this statement. Michelle was my best friend who slept with my then fiance. <laughs> so yeah. She's not holding back when it comes to what her beef with Michelle was. So making note of that little tidbit of information, the inspector asked a few more questions about her relationship with Michelle and if she had any information at all as to where Michelle might be. And Giselle said she had no clue. And besides, she and Michelle weren't really seeing each other or speaking, so she really wouldn't be of any help anyway. Right there off the bat, the investigator ended his first day looking into this knowing that Michelle had a problem with exactly one person, and that one person was Giselle. And this was not only according to everybody in Michelle's life, but according to Giselle herself. The very exact person who Michelle had troubles with right then and there confirmed that yes, they had problems. Michelle slept with her fiance when they were engaged and that they were no longer friends and they did not see each other, nor did they speak to each other anymore. So with that, Giselle has not only managed to distance herself from the entire situation, 
or at least attempting to, by removing herself from being a part of Michelle's social circle. At the same time, she managed to kind of sort of throw Scott under the bus by telling the inspector that he and Michelle had sex while they were engaged. There's all sorts of drama going on here. And from there, the inspector decided to go ahead and send some other detectives over to have a talk with Scott, the father of Giselle's baby, her former fiancé, the man that's at the center of this love triangle. At least, it's a triangle in Giselle's head. Whether or not it was really a thing, or if it was only something Giselle conjured up in her own mind, who knows. But when they did go and talk to Scott, the one thing that immediately stood out to those investigators who spoke to him is that they were very, very surprised to find out that he had sole physical custody of the daughter that he shared with Giselle. Totally nothing wrong with that at all whatsoever, but it's not what usually happens. More often than not, there is shared custody or typically mom is granted full custody if it isn't shared. But when mom is nearby and she's in the picture, it raises eyebrows as to why the dad was given full custody of the child, who at this time was about four and a half years old. In this conversation that detectives had with Scott, they listened to everything that he had to say about his relationship with Giselle, his daughter, and Michelle. Scott was clearly very close with his family. He cared very much for his child. He struck investigators as a genuine, down-to-earth, a family-centric kind of person. And they didn't get the feeling that he was hiding anything or holding anything back or telling them anything that wasn't the truth. So for now, they put Scott to the side and moved on with their investigation. Sunday, May 29th, 2011 arrived. It's been two days since Michelle was last seen on that footbridge walking to the parking garage. More of her family members from San Diego began arriving in Hayward, all of them making a beeline to the police station to meet up with the investigators. And the more people in Michelle's life, her family and friends and loved ones that investigators got to speak to, the more clearly they began to know the kind of person Michelle was, that she had a kind heart, and that she was smart and independent and she wanted to help people. And for investigators, Michelle's case was eerily reminiscent of another young woman whom Michelle kind of reminded them of. Another 20-something Vietnamese nursing student also residing in the Bay Area who disappeared a little more than a year earlier. She even shared the same last name as Michelle, Lee. Her name was Fung, and it really sent a chill down everyone's spine when they looked at the cases side by side. Michelle Lee, Fung Lee. Michelle was 26. Fung was five days shy of being 25. As a matter of fact, Michelle was only six months older than Fung. They were both Vietnamese. They were both nursing students, though Fung had just graduated, while Michelle was still a work in progress. 
Fung went missing on April 25, 2010, and Michelle went missing one year, one month, and two days later, only 50 miles or 80 kilometers apart, on May 27, 2011. They even both drove white Hondas. While Michelle's was a CRV, Fung's was an Accord. Fung was found deceased 12 days later on May 10, 2010. Though to this day her cause of death has not been made public, because as the 10th anniversary of her murder has just passed, her case is still cold and unsolved. We haven't gotten to the discovery of what happened to Michelle just yet, and I'll get to it soon. But I'll tell you now that this is not going to end well. The coincidences there were too much to overlook, and the community, the police, and even Michelle's family and loved ones, at least had to entertain the possibility that they were dealing with some sort of copycat, possibly even the same killer. I'm not going to go too much further into that, because Hayward Police did investigate, and they did try and look for a link between the two. And there was none to be found, and a connection between Michelle's and Fung's cases was not made, so they eliminated that as being a possibility pretty early on. As I said, Fung's case is still unsolved to this day. There has not been a whole lot of media buzz about her recently. I didn't even see a mention of her in recent weeks, as we had just passed the 10th anniversary of Fung having gone missing. And we are, as I write this. And hopefully record and publish this very soon, which I am right now. As I said, Fung was found deceased on May seventh, and today, as I'm recording this, it is May seventh. There was a suspect at the time, Fung's boss, her married boss, with whom it is believed that she was having an affair, but. He'd never been arrested. Nothing has ever been found to definitively link him to the murder. So it's grown ice cold, sadly. But for our case today, there would be no connection between the two missing women. Everything was just one big, huge, bizarre coincidence. So while all of this was going on, Michelle's family remained pretty convinced that she was alive and being kept alive someplace hidden away, because her car was found and there was no damage to it that they were told of, and it was locked, and it was assumed that she must have been able to take the time to do all of that, so she must be alive. The Lee family did not really care for the nonchalant attitude that the police seemed to be having about Michelle's case, but the fact was is that the law enforcement really didn't know what they had on their hands here. Michelle's family continued to push and push and push for answers, but they could clearly see that the investigators just kind of shrugged and threw their hands up and were like, "We don't know yet." The fact was is that there wasn't anything that indicated an act of foul play had taken place just yet. Michelle appeared to be going to her vehicle willingly on that video surveillance on her own volition. She was not being forced or held at gunpoint or moving under any sort of duress. There was nothing that was captured on the surveillance camera that showed a crime had occurred. There were no witnesses that heard or saw anything. 
I mean, I kind of understand that police can only do so much at this point. But, you know, if it were me, if I was Michelle's family, I would have been insisting that they pull Michelle's phone records and go from there. That's a really good starting point, almost in every investigation nowadays. See where her phone was pinging and see who she was communicating with at last. But for now, it seems as though police could only do so much so quickly. She was an adult, too. And as an adult, she's free to do what she wanted to do. And that included going off the grid if she wanted to. They just weren't sure yet if they had a crime. The family was being super impatient about it. And they remained frustrated and angry with the police. They were out there bouncing around the whole Bay Area, not really knowing what the hell to do next or where they were going to go. Because the truth was, they were at a loss as well. They really had no place to stay. They were going from motel to motel, and they were wrapped up in all this chaos, and the police, they felt, were moving at a snail's pace in their eyes. Michelle is out there. She's trapped. She's kidnapped. She's captive. She's being harmed. We've got to find her. But police just can't go around busting down doors either. So it's very frustrating. It was a frustrating start from the very beginning, this search for Michelle. And the one thing the family knew for certain was where her car was found. So a week after Michelle went missing, the family arranged for a vigil to be held at that location. They did what they could to draw as much attention to Michelle's case. They wanted all the media to pick up the story. They wanted the FBI to bring in the cavalry and get involved and work in tandem with the local law enforcement. And you and I both know that the FBI isn't really going to get involved in a case like this unless there are certain criteria involved, like the missing person is a child or the missing person is known to have crossed state lines or if the local law enforcement agency requests their help. And not all law enforcement agencies are going to want to do that. As the Lee family are shouting from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, and doing everything that they can as loud as they can to draw attention to Michelle's case. One person who was at the vigil remained quiet and in the background, and that was Scott. He did care very deeply for Michelle. And at this point, what he was thinking or what he thought may have happened, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I will say that Scott was not involved in what happened to Michelle but I think he knew that there was a strong possibility that he was the reason for it. I am going to go ahead and pause the story here. I wanted to get this first half recorded to you before this week was over so I can get at least part of the story out there. Last week when I recorded that episode on Lizette Lee, it went for two hours and 20 minutes. And it was just so much to do in one sitting and I was losing my patience towards the end. At least this way, I can get this to you. We can talk a little bit about it on social media. I can take a bit of a break and I'll be ready and refreshed for the second half. And as always, the wait won't be long. You guys just hang tight with me. I will be back soon with the conclusion of this story. We will pick it up from the family's investigation 
and the police investigation and the way that those two things are going to diverge from one another as we get into the story, what happened to Michelle Lee. So until then, sweet dreams. From Murder and More here, I am the solo host of the UK-based true crime podcast, where each Sunday I tell you about a murder, disappearance or serial killer. Murder and More is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts, including platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Murder and More, Instagram at Murder and More Pod, and on Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. Head over to murderandmorepodcast.wordpress.com to find out more. everyone, this is Prash, host of Prash's Murder Map. Pack your passport, jump on a plane, and join me on a journey to investigate some of the most heinous and enigmatic murders across the globe and throughout history. We'll look at forensics, psychology and more as we dissect solved and unsolved cases like Australia's Frankston Killer and a murderous family on the American frontier. Hope to see you soon.